open your Bibles to Revelation 5. I'll be reading in chapter 5 from verse 9 to 14. Revelation 5, verse 9. And he sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and your blood, your ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the throng, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Please be seated. Well, I'm very happy to be with you tonight. I'm very grateful for your presence this evening. If you're visiting with us, we are certainly delighted to have you. And um, as you may know by now, we're in the midst of another Sunday night seminar where we're looking at the book of Revelation. And we come tonight to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. This will be the fourth lesson on the book of Revelation, and we're moving ourselves right along through this great book. Now, if you did not get an outline, I encourage you to get one, and it'll be very easy for you to do. All you have to do is raise your hand, and these fine deacons will come around with an outline and give it to you. And I encourage you to get one of the outlines because it has a lot more on the outline, both the front and the back, uh, than what I can present in the short time that I, that I have tonight, and I hope that you'll take the outline and read them and save them. Um, uh, they're, give them a second. They're getting around. They're really walking fast. I didn't know Clint could walk that fast, but at any rate. <laughs> but I think everybody will. Uh, there's plenty for everyone. I try to put the outlines in the bulletin. So if you go to the bulletin and your box and you pull your bulletin out, you should have that as an insert. And uh, But should you not have gotten one for whatever reason or forgotten it or plenty uh, here for you and at your disposal, uh, I spent some time on the outline talking about another view of Revelation. Last time I talked about the preterist view. And tonight on the outline I talk a little bit about the futuristic view of the, of the Revelation, but I'm not going to spend time talking about that tonight. I'll just refer you to the outline and let you read that. I'd rather spend my time with the text because we have a challenging text before us and we have a lot of material that we want to cover. And I cover chapters 4 and 5 together because they have to do with the same scene. It is the throne room scene. And you've seen in chapter 1 the vision of Christ among the churches and the candlesticks. And then you have chapters 2 and 3, the introduction to the seven churches of Asia, to whom the book was written and the encouragement was given. And now in chapter 4 and chapter 5, the curtain is pulled back and John is able to see what is taking place in heaven, something that very, very few people have ever been able to see. 
as you look at this uh, particular book, you're going to see how the Christ and the church that belongs to Christ overcomes the Roman Empire and overcomes the persecutions of the world and overcomes the difficulties of the world and overcomes the work of Satan and overcomes evil that is in the world. And before John is able to see that, though, he sees this great scene or vision in heaven in chapter 5, 4, and chapter 5. Now, as you look at this scene, it's very similar to what some other men have seen. For example, if we took the time and went back to Isaiah chapter 6, you would see that Isaiah is describing much the same thing. And if we took the time to go back to Ezekiel chapter 1, you would see that once again, Ezekiel is seeing the throne room scene. And there's a lot of similarities between the visions of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the one we're going to study tonight. They symbolize the characteristics of God in highly figurative type of language. Now let's stop and think about this just for a moment before we actually get into the text itself. Sunday morning Bible class, we were going through 1 Corinthians. And we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And there's a section in chapter 2 where God talks about, you know, eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But these have been revealed to you through the Spirit. And so he tells us in that section, in that chapter, God the Holy Spirit has revealed this thing, these things to you about God's wonderful plan. Well, he's talking about the words, the revelation, the teaching of the book of 1 Corinthians and the New Testament teaching of the Bible. The Holy Spirit revealed in words the things that God wanted us to know. But here the Holy Spirit is revealing the will of God in pictures, in symbolic forms. I see it's a little unusual for us because we're used to propositional type truth. Truth written down in words, where you have a noun and you have a verb and you have an object and you have the modifiers, and we study all these sentence structures and we understand the concepts involved. But here you have truth that is revealed, but it's revealed in a different way. It's revealed in symbols and pictures. And we look at the symbols and we look at the pictures and we come to understand the truth that is being revealed in this particular form. You and I have studied about the word apocalypse or apocalyptic literature. Coming from the Greek word apocalypsis, it simply means an unveiling or a revealing. God has revealed in these picture-type forms His revelation, His Word, His will for the churches and for us and for our lives. And this is what John is told to see. He's told to come up here and see the vision which God has uh, given for him to see. And what does he see? In Revelation chapter 4, he sees one on the throne. And there he is described as one that is of a crystal-type stone. And he who sat there on the, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, verse 3. Jasper is kind of like a diamond. Now, translators have always had trouble translating these words. It conveys the idea of more of a diamond. Or carnelian is more of a fiery red type of stone, or Sardinian type stone, depending on the translation that you're using. And what they're simply conveying is the idea of the purity of God, the holiness of God, the judgment of God, the red stone, the wrath of God. 
and he sees these particular matters, God's great holiness, and it's given to us as a picture. And he sees this throne in heaven, and he sees the one sitting on the throne. Let me read. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. I'll stop at verse 4 for a moment. And so he tells us there's an emerald rainbow around the throne. And one begins to think about the rainbow which God gave Noah in the days of Genesis chapter 9, a covenant which God had made with the uh, people and with mankind that he would no longer destroy the world by means of a flood. God is a covenant-making God, and God keeps his covenant. Man will break the covenant that he has with God, but not God. God always keeps his covenant, and he sees this beautiful emerald-like rainbow surrounding the throne. Well, what are these pictures conveying to his mind? They're conveying to his mind the holiness of God and the purity of God, that God is a covenant-keeping God, that God keeps his covenant, and no one is worthy of the covenant that God makes with them. But yet God has made several covenants with man. And now we live under the the last covenant, the last will and covenant or testament of Jesus Christ. And he sees that, the great God of heaven and earth, creator of heaven and earth on the throne. Now he also mentioned in verse 4 these thrones, these 20 and 4 thrones that are surrounding the throne that he's seen that's bathed in the emerald rainbow. And there he says there were elders there sitting on those thrones. Around the throne was 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments. And many commentaries look upon this as being a special order of angels, but I really don't think so. I think what he's talking about here is simply the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New, symbolizing the redeemed of all the ages. And there all the redeemed of all the ages are there in the throne room of heaven, clothed in white, the purity of them. And they have the crowns on their heads. For they, for, from the throne came flashings and lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Well, what would these images convey? Well, they're conveying the authority of God, the lightnings, the thunder, God's great authority. And there is this sea between them, uh, that is, uh, the sea of glass, clear as crystal, symbolizing the transcendence of God. I'm not going through an elaborate discussion as to why we say this about these particular symbols, because we don't have time. But if we went to Revelation chapter 21, and we will one day, we'll see how that this sea of glass is no more. Now God's people are in full communion with God himself. The sea must represent the transcendency of God, that he's separate and apart from his people because he's holy. But one day he will not be. The crowns which they have on their heads with reference to the matter of the victory which has been won through Jesus Christ. 
the seven spirits of God. Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, there's only one spirit. Chapter 4 and verse 4, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. To say that it's the seven spirits simply means the perfectness, the completeness of it. You and I have come across this term seven before. We're going to come across it again. In this particular context is saying the Holy Spirit has revealed these matters. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. He didn't say it was crystal. He said it was like crystal. See, these are symbols. And they convey something. And he's able to see this great throne room of God, the authority of God, the holiness of God, the power of God, and these heavenly creatures, these heavenly beings that are before the throne of God. The seven symbolizing the perfectness of it and the completeness of it, the complete perfection of the matter. Now, an interesting group is now discussed in chapter 4, verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Please don't get embroiled in all of the symbols. We're going to make a mistake if we focus on the minor and forget the major point. We want to focus on the major point and not get embroiled in the minor point. The major point is what God allowed John to see. His holiness, his greatness, his sovereignty, his authority. And now he sees these four living creatures. Evidently a special order of angels here. And notice how they're described. One is like a lion. And you can almost see. Now it didn't say he was a lion. It said he's like a lion. The nobility of it, the courage of the lion is conveyed in the creature. The ox, the strength of the individual. The ability to work. One is like the face of a man. The intelligence of the man. The ability that man has as God's creature. One is like an, an eagle in flight. And we naturally think of how regal the eagle is and how swift to carry out the mission. And what you have in this section of the, of the chapter is simply a reference to the special order of angels that are ready, willing, and able to carry out the will of God. In fact, if I were to compare this with Ezekiel chapter 1 or go to Isaiah chapter 6, which I don't have time tonight, but I reference it for you, I would soon see that here we have seraphim and cherubim being described for us, special order of angels. And then some would disagree, well, cherubim and seraphim are not angels, they're some special creature. Well, okay, fine. If you want to discuss those uh, points, go ahead and discuss them. But don't do so at the expense of losing sight of the big picture. The big picture is the willingness of the divinely created spiritual beings to do the will of God, to know what to do, and to know when to do it, and to know how to do it, that they serve the living God day and night, and they are eager to bring about His bidding and to do His will. These are the special order of angels, the four creatures. You have the twenty and four thrones, the patriarchs of the old, the apostles of the new. You have the four, and li the four living creatures that are there before the throne. And they cease not to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's almost just like Isaiah chapter 6. One of my favorite chapters out of the, the pages of the Old Testament. But when I look at a passage like that, I'm thinking about myself, 
And I'm thinking, you know, as a Christian, I should be the kind of person that has the faith of a lion and the courage to stand up for the Word of God. And I should be strong as a faithful Christian to do the will of God like the calf or the ox. And I should be an intelligent servant of the Lord as God created man with intelligence and ability. And I should be eager and swift to do the will of God like the eagle, like the special order of angelic beings, spiritual beings which God has created to do His will, as a physical being devoted to God in doing His will, may I incorporate those qualities and characteristics to my spiritual life that it can be said of me, He's quick to do the will of God. He's eager to serve the will of God. He is a man of great faith. She is a woman of great courage. And just as these particular beings serve God day and night, that should be the will of my life. And they praise God which is the second hymn of praise that we have seen so far in the book. And what do they say in that song of praise? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Why would they cast their crowns before the throne? Because they know that the great victory they have won is because of Him that sat upon the throne. They cast their crowns before the throne of God in an emblematic way of saying, What we have achieved is because of Your grace, and because of Your favor, and because of Your help. You are the one that deserves the glory and the praise, not us. And so in a symbolic gesture, they take those crowns of gold from their brow and they cast them before the foot of the throne to show honor and glory for the one who sits on the throne. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. There is no doubt as to whom Jesus or to whom this particular scene is describing. It is describing God Almighty who created the world in which we live and continues to sustain the world in His wonderful way. God is worthy of uh, their praise and He alone is worthy of their praise. Angels are not worthy of praise. Uh, Angels are not worthy of worship. Created beings are not worthy of worship. But only God is worthy of our worship. No man-made idea, no human being is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of our worship. What a scene. But on the heels of that comes chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we have the sealed book. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Now this little book, this English Standard Version translates it properly. It's a scroll. You may have in your translation a book. Either way is fine, but it's referring to a scroll. Notice a point or two about these scrolls. And those of you who know me know by now 
I like to talk about these ancient scrolls, and I like to study these ancient manuscripts and documents. Notice that it's written on the front and the back. It's written on the front and the back, which is a very common thing for them to do in ancient times in writing materials. Writing materials was very scarce, and so they utilized all the space that they could get. So they would write on the front, they'd write on the back, and you see that reflected in this passage here. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So very typical of scrolls at that time. Scrolls of this particular time were made probably out of a papyrus. Uh, you and I have studied all that in other uh, Sunday night seminars on how we got the Bible. Sometimes they used animal skin, such as parchment and vellum. Vellum was a very uh, fine, cured animal skin for writing material. You see, paper was more of a modern invention, and paper didn't come till years later. And the book was much more years after that. Book is a relatively modern invention where they would take all the leaves and sew them down on the left side and then make a book, the Latin word codex, out of that. That means a book form. Well, here we have a scroll. A scroll was more rolled out together, and then you'd have a stick on one end of the scroll and a stick on the other, and it would be rolled up in the middle, and you would carry the uh, document around with you that way. And this is what he has in mind. On the front and on the back, the scroll was written, or this book, if you have that in your translation. But notice that it's in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. And a proclamation goes out, John says. A strong angel, a powerful angel makes a proclamation. You know, who's worthy to open up the seals of the seven seals of the book? And it's really a challenge in a way. Is there anyone available who can open up these seals to make sure that the document was uh, authentic and to make sure that the document was protected? It was sealed. But this book is not just sealed once. This book or scroll is sealed seven times to show the completeness of the revelation, to show the accuracy of the revelation, that it is the actual genuine article. Is there anyone who's worthy to unloose the seals of this great document? Now, our Bible is the greatest document that you and I have. Our Bible is a completed Bible, Jude verse 3. It is once for all given unto the saints. There are no new books that are going to be added to our Bible. There's no new manuscript. There's no new document that somebody's going to dig up. And it's going to reach, um, uh, meet the test of canonicity and thus be added to the Bible. Uh, it is an inspired Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. So perfect is this Bible that you have from the very beginning to the very ending. The warning, do not add to or take away from the teaching or the reading of this Bible. In fact, in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, you have the warning. Anybody who adds to or takes away from the book of this prophecy, why well, the plague shall be added unto him. Do not take away, do not add. It is a perfect document. Well, this is a sealed document that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 5. We have a perfect document here in God's divine will. But John sees another document, that document in the right hand of God, and the challenge goes out, is there anyone here who's able to loose the perfect sealed document from the right hand of God? And no one's able to do it. Four and twenty elders can't do it. 
Four living creatures can't open it. All the great men, the high and the mighty on earth, they can't do it. Well, what about those under the earth? Under the earth would no doubt refer to the Hadean world, those who have lived and died and their spirits gone into the land of departed spirits. Anyone there can open up this great book from the hand of God? Or maybe Moses could do it. Moses was a great man. Maybe the spirit of Moses could come and open up and unseal this book. No. What about David? David was a great man. Maybe David could unloose the seals of this book. Or Samuel. What a great man Samuel was. Well, let's think about Elijah, one of the great prophets of God called the Prince of Prophets. Maybe he could come. Maybe his spirit could come and unloose the seals of the book. Well, the answer to all these questions, rhetorically speaking, is no. No one can open the seals. And John begins to weep. Verse 4. And I began to weep loudly. Now the question is, why did John weep? Was it from a selfish motivation? Oh man, we're not going to be able to see what's in the book. Nobody can open the book coming from the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. Oh man, I was looking forward to seeing what's going to happen. It wasn't from a selfish motivation. John's weeping. In fact, it says, he wept loudly. He wept loudly because he was fearful that the purpose of God would not be fulfilled. And what was the purpose? The purpose was for him to see this vision recorded for the seven churches to give them courage and strength and help in time of trouble. And now we're not going to be able to see it. Lord, your people need this. Your people need this revelation. Your people need to know what you are going to do. And now we're not going to do it. And this powerful angel comes to him and says, Now don't, don't cry. Don't weep. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said, I should have said elder, I said angel. One of the elders said to me, Weep no, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And when I read that, immediately I thought of ourselves. How many times have we been fearful for no reason whatsoever? John weeps loudly because he thinks the purpose of God is going to be thwarted and that the people will not learn the will of God for their lives over this terrible time of persecution. How many times have we felt that way? How many times have we wept over things that really we shouldn't have because we lacked the knowledge that we should have had or we lacked the faith that we should have had? I'm not saying that John lacked the sufficient faith that he should have had, but I am saying that John lacked the knowledge because here the elder comes and tells John, now there's no need in you weeping. And I want to tell you, there's been a lot of times in our lives there's been no need for us to weep because we lack the knowledge or we lack the faith. We lack the knowledge and we're filled with fear. We lack the knowledge and we we're weeping. We're human and we're weak. And sometimes we weep over things and we're fearful over things that we really shouldn't be weeping over or being fearful of. And that was the case here. John didn't have sufficient evidence at that point. He didn't know what was going to happen. I'm trying to analyze verse 4. And I'm trying to understand why did John weep so loudly. 
And I think we've discovered the reason. He was mistaken. He didn't have all the information yet. And he begins to weep. And the elder comes to him and says, there's no need for weeping. And in many respects in our life, there's no need for weeping either. Weep no more, he says. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John realizes we need to know what's in that book. And what's in that book starts at chapter 6 and goes to chapter 22. And that'll be the point of beginning next Sunday night in chapter 6, the opening of the first seal. And then you're going to have uh, the, the sounding of seven trumpets, and then you're going to have the pouring of seven bulls. And he wants to know what's involved in that. He said, now there is one worthy. He wasn't here on earth. There's no great, high, and mighty person, no created being in heaven that could do it. There's no one, no departed spirits in the Hadean world that could do it. But there is one. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, he is the one, the root of David. Now, these particular references to Christ, of course, uh, tell us just exactly who he is. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. It reminds us of Genesis chapter 49. He was the root of David. That is, he was a descendant of David. And there is worthy to open the seals of the book. There is one who is worthy to do that. Now, as he, you know, it would be fun to run those references down, but let's keep working our way through the text. Um, he looks over here, and it surprises me a little bit. I think it might, might have surprised him. It would certainly have surprised me when this elder who understands these matters said, Now, look, there is one who can open up the seal. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I would think, okay, that's going to be a real big tough guy there. He's a lion. Uh, he is the root of David. When you say the root of David or the root of somebody's family, that means he goes back to the very source of the family itself. Second Samuel chapter 7. I just don't have time to go into those verses. And there you have uh, the promise that God made to David. I'm going to build you a house that will last forever. That house that he's talking about is the church. The church of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. And I think as I would look at the line of the tribe of Judah, and I would look to see the root of David, I might see a mighty warrior, a man who'd killed the giant, somebody who was a very powerful individual, filled with awe as to his ability. And what does John see? He sees a lamb. And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw. Notice where he was. He's between the throne and the four, the twenty and four elders and the living creature. His close proximity to God. He's obviously referring to Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 is about God sitting on the throne, bathed in an emerald rainbow, on, beyond the transparent crystal sea. One that's, uh, that's beyond, transcendent of man himself. Chapter 5 is all about Jesus Christ. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, it would look like this lamb would be dead. But here was a lamb. He looked like a lamb. 
evidence of his sacrifice on the cross. But he's standing now. He's alive. It would look like he would be a dead animal, (coughs) a dead sacrifice. But here is a lamb that was dead, but now he's alive. He's standing. A lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so he's talking about the sacrificial life of Jesus Christ. There's no one worthy to unloose the seals of the book except one. And Jesus becomes worthy to unloose the seals. He is worthy of this particular matter. Jump on down to verse 9. I'll, I'll fill in the blanks in a minute. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. The word worthy appears seven times in the book of Revelation. Six times it's in a good sense. One time it's in a bad sense. And that's when the wicked are going to receive uh, the just judgment of their deeds. Chapter 16 and verse 6. And that, of course, is something that they do not want to receive, but that they will. Here, the Lamb is worthy to receive the book and to open up the seals of the book. And uh, as he does, it symbolizes the great will and the great mind of God in the matter. I should spend just a brief moment talking about the description of the Lamb. The Lamb, of course... um, has uh, seven horns, and he went, and uh, let's see, verse uh, 6, living creature among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns, a symbol of authority, a symbol of power. Notice the number seven again. And he had seven eyes, knowing all that is to be known, which are the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit of God, which God has revealed which God gave upon the Son of God without measure, and which God promised the apostles of Christ after the ascension of Christ. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, notice what happens. The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Well, you see there, that proves it. We can have instrumental music, mechanical instruments of music in the worship of the church today. How absurd is that? I mean, all that is is a symbol about worship. Uh, Instrumental music, the harps were used and the viol was used in Old Testament worship. And the only music commanded in the New Testament is a cappella singing, vocal music only. That's all the command that you have. It's the only example that you have. It says sing. And so some have actually taken and twisted this passage to say, well, that means it's okay to have mechanical instruments of music in the worship today. That authorizes the guitar and the drum and the organ and all of the mechanical instruments that people love to have in their worship service. Well, he's not talking about that at all. The only kind of singing, the only kind of worship that has authorized music is singing. And that's all that God is pleased with. That's all you have in the New Testament. Well, here they have harps. Well, they're worshiping God. Who are they worshiping? They're worshiping the Son of God. And they're worshiping the one on the throne. And they're saying, He is worthy to do this. He is worthy to loose the seal. He is worthy to open this book up and tell us what God's going to do. And what is He going to do in this terrible time of persecution and suffering? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now, notice the reason 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Notice the reach of that. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Notice the result of that. And you have made them a kingdom and priests of God. And notice the chorus that comes from that. Uh, And they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, how many praise words are there in that verse? There are seven. He is the only one who's worthy of complete and total praise. Count them. Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I'm in Revelation chapter 5, and I'm studying verse 12. And I'm looking at the praise and the worship that's taking place in heaven. And notice what's taking place. When the challenge goes out, who can open up the book and who can release the seals? Nothing. No one can do it. But then one steps forward, the lamb that was slain, that is now standing, the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can take the book, and from the right hand of God, he takes this sealed book. And when he does, all of heaven erupts in praise. Thousands and thousands, myriad and myriads of created spiritual beings now praise Jesus Christ, for he is worthy. And I heard every creature in heaven, verse 13, and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a thrilling scene it is to look at that raptured worship, perfect worship in heaven itself of God Almighty and the Lamb of God. Now, I don't think that's so hard to understand. Now, I may not know of everything that takes place in that book and in those chapters. I may not be able to explain every symbol and every perfect little matter that happens, but I got the point. I got the point that only God through Jesus Christ is going to save man from sin, that it is what Christ did and what God sent him to do that that great task is going to be accomplished. I've got the point that only God and Jesus Christ are worthy of our worship. I've got the point. Turn with me in your songbook just for a moment tonight. I'm not going to try to lead this, but I just want to read the words of a hymn that we sing all the time. It's in on page 782. And as you turn to this hymn, 782, I'd like for you to notice the wording with me tonight. I'm I'm going to read it. You read it silently to yourself. Worthy of praise is Christ our Redeemer. Worthy of glory, honor, and power. Worthy of all our soul's adoration. Worthy art thou. Worthy art thou. 
worthy of riches, blessings, and honor. Worthy of wisdom, glory, and power. Worthy of earth and heaven's thanksgiving. Worthy art thou. Worthy art thou. That's Revelation chapter 4 and 5. The praise of God and of His Christ who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's why we're here tonight. That's why we assemble. That's why we spend so much time studying this Word. Because He's worthy of all glory and praise and honor. Next Sunday night, <clears throat> we're going to read the first seal. And I'm interested in finding out what that's all about. And you and I, when we come together, we're going to do our very best. As we read John opening up that, uh, looking at the vision where Christ opens up that first seal. And see how that that great vision is a source of help and encouragement for them and for us as well. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, surely you're motivated to do so by now. To give proper praise and glory to God by repenting of sin and by confessing your faith in Him. By being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. If that's your need tonight, I encourage you to come. While together we stand and while we